Hello. Hello. Hola. Hola. Bonjour. Здравствуйте. Bienvenidos and welcome to Radio Natura. Radio Natura. To Radio Natura. Voices from around the world, bringing you all things related to nature and sustainability. Rethinking what it means to live in peace with nature and imagining a brighter future. Brought to you by the Pax Natura Foundation. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Radio Natura. I'm Jordan Anderson. I'm sitting here again with Hugh Bollinger. It's kind enough to come over to my house tonight for this interview, where we're going to be talking about some restoration case studies. Uh, Hugh, can you reintroduce yourself for our listeners? Yes. Good. Good. Good evening, everyone, or good. Good afternoon, wherever you are. Um, uh, Hugh Bollinger, and I'm really pleased to talk to Jordan. And I've selected uh, four case studies. And I really appreciate being able to talk about them. I wanted to give four examples of very, very different projects. Uh, one from Western Colorado, one from China, one from Australia, and a generic uh, series of discussions about uh, rivers, uh, restoring rivers. And so um, I'd like to start by just reminding everybody from the first session that. that we are dealing with restoring a damaged system. And we go back all the way to the ancient Greeks and their word aikos, which translates in English as to ecos, which are the root, is the root word for both ecology and economy. And so in a generic way, we're talking about, which means in the Greek, uh, of the house or of the home. So we're talking about rebuilding the home that has been damaged using tools of ecology and in restoration, you need resources in terms of usually financial to accomplish things. So we'll start with the Colorado example. And there was a, um, a lease granted to a large mining company from New York. Just, just to preface, you were the head of this restoration product, project, weren't you? Yes, I, des- I, had a, I designed it and had a team. We, we implemented it, that's correct. And the mining company had acquired, my memory was it was around 2,000 acres of land in western Colorado and it, uh, from the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management. But the mine itself was only going to be on somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of, of the, the lease area. In that part of Colorado, there was a, the, the vegetation was very decadent. So you can have degraded systems that are not eroded. They can be the vegetation itself can be uh, degraded. They had suppressed fire. They hadn't um, done any clearing. It was just a, a vastly overgrown shrub landscape, semi-arid before you got into the forested zones a bit higher. And the mining people themselves uh, had a major concern uh, in that the land was prime elk habitat all around that part of western Colorado. And they were very concerned that the elk not get involved with the mine itself. They wanted to make sure that they didn't hurt or harm the, the wildlife. So we were called in to 
develop a scheme for them. And it was after one weekend of wandering through the, the landscape, it was obvious the problem, which was that in the winter, elk are constrained where they can, uh, and most wildlife are constrained where they can actually get their, their winter range, their food. And so we came up with a scheme where a patchwork quilt was designed over a, about a 10-year period. And we, did, we demonstrated the first year for the miners and the, the staff. And in this case, we had the team included myself, a, a geologist, a hydrologist, um, and a wildlife manager. But to implement, we needed the help of the miners themselves. We needed to have buy-in, if you will, to, to uh, what this environmental project could do. And we asked them, the, the mining company uh, that in January of, of the first year, could they make available to us one of their dozer engineers to come and follow the, the scheme we had, had designed. And so it was, a, it was basically, for the 10 years, it looked like a checkerboard. And the guy that ran the dozer, we gave him a map of the first year, and he, in the dead of winter in the middle of January, came out with his big gigantic machine and scraped away the decadent vegetation, leaving about a foot or maybe a foot and a half of stems in the patch of ground that was cleared off. Basically, what happened was in the next spring, the, 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 the shrubs sprouted from the roots. And the design for the patchwork was set far from where the mine, on the least landscape where the mine was going to, to actually be. And it, it worked beautifully. The scheme was really a success. So you're trying to draw the elk away from the mine by improving another spot. Of exactly. We wanted them to be able to find a spot where they could, in the winter, browse uh, for food. And exactly what happened. They and other wildlife probably did as well, but the, the goal was elk. And in years later, um, the, it was such a successful restoration and, and recovery for the elk. The mine was given permission by the, uh, the state of Colorado to offer some elite hunting tags for a, a prize elk. Uh, so, like they would give 10 a year or something like that. Oh, so, it really helped out the herd. It helped out the herd. It helped out the mine. The, the, the miners were really happy. They really implemented it themselves. We did the first year, we designed it, and they carried it forward. And the, the project eventually became a study, a case study for Colorado State University. In, in restoration of wildlife uh, management. One of the things I, I think that is, um, in all the cases when you are directly involved in restoration, it, it's extremely satisfying when projects go well. And it takes a lot of work, but when you see something that is recovered from what you do by implementing with some knowledge of biology and ecology, it, it really is a satisfying thing. The second case is a complete failure, and this was done in China during the time of Mao's Great Leap Forward. And Chairman Mao wanted China to be self-sufficient, and which is nothing wrong with that, of course. But what he proposed that the Chinese villagers would do across northern China was make backyard steel mills. Basically, they would have to produce iron in their backyard. And so what did they do? But they ended up basically deforesting most of the mountains around Beijing. I mean, literally cleaned out all the trees 
to stoke the, the backyard the smelters. And it, it didn't really work very well even to do that. The production was extremely low. And, but they started having problems with dust and they, and, and they had pro, pro, floods from runoffs, uh, creeks dried up. Typical things when you completely remove a forest from a landscape, all the other ecosystem services that are provided were eliminated. So the Chinese said, we have to replant the forest, which they did with, by growing billions of young pine trees. They were the correct species, but they, they took me to see the project because they wanted to know what happened. And when I got to the landscape that had theoretically been planted, there was only a mountain range that had only a tree here and there scattered uh, across the, the slopes. And um, I asked them a, a question, um, had they inoculated the pines with mycorrhiza, the, the fungal symbiont that pines are absolutely obligate, they require them to grow. And the, the Chinese were very embarrassed, they, they didn't even know what I was talking about. They were completely clueless about this fundamental component of ecosystem biology where most plants, particularly trees and, and pines, are, they require them, have a symbiosis between a variety of soil microorganisms that allow them to grow and flourish. The, the tree gives the fungus uh, carbohydrates and the fungus gives the tree various nutrients like phosphorus. So in that case, they completely lost all the time, all the expense they put in for, for basically a 95% fail, fail rate. That mycorrhizae root inter, interdependency, that, that's a fairly recent discovery, isn't it? Actually not. Um, it's been known for, for decades, a long, long time, that, that fungi are found in soils. I think the, the depth of the connection started being uncovered more in the 1970s. And there are a variety of, of mycorrhizal. Orchids have their own form. Pines have their specific ones. Other plants have their, uh, they're both indo is inside the root and ecto on the outside of the root. There are different kinds of mycorrhizae, but they're one of the most fundamental elements of, of ecosystem science. And the Chinese didn't know that. And all their good intentions, all their time, all their expense was wasted. The next case is from Australia. And this one, it is uh, relates to a tropical forest, and it's a it's a wonderful story because it was done and it was accomplished by a woman who no, knew nothing about ecology when she started. Germaine Greer it, had been a famous uh, writer, activist, lecturer, primarily in in women's studies, uh, feminist issues, and she was invited to give a lecture before her retirement. She decided to retire after traveling the world, giving her readings and, and lectures. And she was asked to come give one last lecture in Brisbane, which is the capital of Queensland in Australia. And she had a day off and she just thought she'd, she'd rent a car and go driving around to, to see the landscape, see a little bit outside the city. Brisbane's a big city, more somewhat like Denver in the scale, but there are mountains nearby. And she was driving around just with no particular plan and she found this dirt road, followed the dirt road and got lost and was trying to get back to some other highway and she came across this for sale sign and it said 
farm for sale. And she stopped and, and took a look at it, wrote down the phone number for the agent, and then found the road and, and went back to a dinner, whatever it was the, the organizers had arranged. And the next day she decided, I'd like to go see this piece of property. So she did. She called up the agent and he, he or she told her how to, to go to in, get through the gate. And she went and, and this was an abandoned dairy farm and it had completely been overgrown with weeds and raspberries and blackberries, which are invasive species in Australia. Uh, and it had been a tropical rainforest before it was uh, cut down. And she wandered around the property and, and it wasn't a very promising looking purchase. And locations on the periphery of, of the farm were still some patches of rainforest that were not, had not been cut. And she wandered over there just to look at them and there was a, a stump of a, a formerly rainforest tree she just sat down on, on and was not paying much attention until this bowerbird walked out of the bush. And bowerbirds are, are a famous ground-dwelling bird in Australia. They're rather big and they make a very fancy nest where they do a dance to attract a mate. And then the bird almost walked up to her and just stared at her, what are you doing here? <laughs> and she just got amazed that this bird would do that. And that serendipitous event convinced her to buy the farm, which she did. She took all her earnings from her book and, and bought this farm and decided that she would try to restore it. What she did was smart. She started reading about ecology and Greer reached out to a few biologists in Queensland to come to advise her. And they put in a nursery together. She collected seeds and cuttings of plants that still were in the patches of rainforest that around the farm and they grew this nursery and they started replanting saplings and seedlings as they got large enough in spots around. She didn't know anything about succession, the process of how one thing leads to another toward a climax type forest, but she figured that some of them would survive because they came from the local uh, um, vegetation and she was correct. And over a 10 year period she basically rebuilt a rainforest on what had been an abandoned farm. Uh, she So Greer it changed her life. She wrote a book, which is one of the references which uh, uh, will have her resources for li listeners later, about her rainforest years. And um, also founded a small foundation called the Gon Friends of Gondwana Rainforest. <laughs> and Gondwana land, of course, was Australia had been part of that mega continent before things broke apart and drifted off on continental places where they're sitting today. But Australia still has patches of the original vegetation that has survived on that continent for 50, 60 million years, of which this little parcel was a remnant. And the foundation, because they were so successful with her farm, she decided she wanted to make available to friends and neighbors in the community around there her knowledge about what if they had some piece of abandoned land or if they wanted to restore a forest or a creek they would provide the 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 services and the information so it was it was a a very successful project and one that happened because of a chance encounter with a strange bird
That's amazing, though. She was able to do it in just 10 years. 10 That's years. a really short timeline to restore a rainforest. In the case of, of a rainforest, if you have... If there's rain, and so the, the, that bit of the environment uh, is available. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what she needed to do was control the weeds. And one of the things she did do religiously, she used some um, chemical, chemical herbicides to every time they had cleaned, cleaned out all of the weeds, all of the blackberries, but the roots were still there. And so sprouts would come. And so every time she saw one, she sprayed some herbicide mm-hmm. to make sure that those young plants, which weren't big enough to c- compete with the, 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 the invasives, got a chance. Mm-hmm. So, but 10 years in, she has, and, and there's been a film done on it, and, uh, and her book is, is, is wonderful, and we'll list that at the end. Yeah. So the last case study is one that I've always um, liked because almost anywhere they've tried, it works, and that's restoring rivers. There are all kinds of ways that rivers get degraded. They, they're being channelized so that they, the water moves too fast. Chemical pollution from agriculture and industrial sources causes major fish die-off. Overgrazing can uh, cause siltation and, and ruin the vegetation around the banks. Dumping trash. I mean, there, there are so many abuses that can happen to a river that um, they're, they're ripe for lots of restoration work. Dams, of course, that, that's another key one in the 19th century of virtually uh, across the country. Any creek or, or stream not, 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 didn't have to be a giant river, got a dam on it. So in this case, again, to, you have to kickstart the, the ecological processes that make rivers what they are, and that requires engineering. And, uh, and engineers, it can be as simple as applying, putting large boulders in key spots in, in, a, in a creek or dropping logs in key places because you want to get the water itself to help restore the, the, the stream bed and they, with pools and, and gravels. Uh, salmon and trout, they, they spawn in calm pools of very highly oxygenated water with gravels. Uh, so recovery can happen very fast. A friend of mine uh, took me to see one of the projects that uh, his group, the Watershed Committee of the Ozarks, uh, which is another resource we'll put up later, uh, an incredibly innovative project funded by the, the people of the state of Missouri. They tax themselves like a quarter a penny on purchases in the state, and it goes into a fund just to restore rivers in Missouri. And for most people who in the United States who listen to this, Missouri has is a has limestone topography, uh, and the Ozarks are these beautiful uh, mountains that, that are completely underlain by by limestone, which has volumes of water in there. And so, keeping the the, the fresh water is very important to, to the people of Missouri, for all kinds of reasons, uh, and just the beauty of the Ozarks themselves. So the, the, the case that he took me out to was, had been uh, um, a very damaged creek that crossed a piece of farmland. Cattle had just wandered all, all around, 
and they destroyed the, the banks of the creek, the, um, they eaten all the vegetation down to nothing. So it, it was just a mud hole. Uh, and what they did uh, in that case, um, they um, got the farmer to put up some fences. They, they through the through the money supplied by the committee, they bought fencing and fenced off the sections that were exposed to uh, on the farm. And within the first year, as the stream, because the stream is still there, uh, they did place a few logs, but the stream itself cleaned itself out. Mm-hmm. And within a year of, of actually removing the, the cattle, some beautiful swimming holes, they had trout fishing returned, um, and it's a, a, a perfect example of how um, river restoration is can happen so quickly. In Washington State, dams were <clears throat> up near Olympia uh, and the the Cascade Mountains. The Elwha Dam was was built at the latter part of the 19th century, and after it destroyed the salmon fishery and the tribal people that lived on the land for generations requested that the dams be torn down and there were two of them and the second one finally was taken down about a year ago maybe two and the Ilwa River within two years salmon had returned to come back to their the the grounds where they had been so it's again another and we can give a resource for that one too if you want it but rivers are easily restored with the right thinking. And it goes all the way back to Leonardo da Vinci, uh, who was very interested in water. His drawings were had great interest in, in natural processes. And he invented the term for, in, in Italian it means basket, but the, the word is gabeon. And in, in the Ozarks, in, in, in Washington State, they have a lot of water, so the process happens. In Italy, they don't have a lot of water, but you can still restore a river using a technology that stretches all the way back to um, Leonardo. And a gabion is basically a structure built into a river bank. It can be some riprap with stones attached. It can be uh, just some barriers that are placed uh, on various sections of a creek and the ones I knew about were on the uh, in the southern near Tucson in the in the Sonoran Desert, and what those ba- those barriers do, they have flash floods during their monsoons. They get down in the southwest, and the creeks um, have tonnage of water that happens very fast, mm-hmm. and it, it erodes everything. But the but the gabions halt the, the force. So the engineering of of the structures placed, uh, you know, every hundred meters or whatever the distance is depending on on the actual site push the water to be to slow down it, it hits the water the, the flood will hit a barrier and then it'll try to go to the other side it's another barrier and it slows all the way down and what happens it starts ponding the, the creek rather than flooding it and in that case in the desert the water seeps deep into the ground mm-hmm circling back up through aquifers to uh, revegetate desert grasses. So the cycle, even in a, in a, in a place as arid as, as the, the Sonoran Desert, uh, river restoration is possible. 
And like I've tried to um, say with all these, uh, these four examples, restoration is, is site-specific. You have to know the conditions you're working on, whether it's dead, decadent shrubs in Colorado or uh, degraded creeks in Missouri. Each require different approaches to apply some knowledge from the ecological side of, of the, the system or the economic um, engineering side to accomplish some success. So in terms of the resources, The White Beach, The Rainforest Years is the book uh, I strongly recommend for people who'd like to, who may know nothing about ecology. This famous writer, learning what she did changed her life. She had toured the world giving lectures of, uh, and, and it was a bird and a forest that came to, uh, to be one of the most important things she ever did. The Watershed Committee of the Ozarks is this wonderful community-based organization that is supported by the people of Missouri with, with their own uh, purchases when they go to the market. There in Brazil, there's a group run by the famous uh, photographer uh, uh, Salgado, who he, and he's photographed people all over the world. And he and his wife started the Instituto Terra on the Atlantic rainforest in southern Brazil, where less than 10% of the forest remains from what it had been uh, when, the, when the Portuguese arrived. And they have been doing somewhat the same thing as in Australia, starting their own nursery with trees and plants from that forest. And it has come back in 20 years. They've got now several thousands of hectares that have restored to the Atlantic rainforest. And they've even had some of the rare golden monkeys that live in that forest come to back to their restored property. There, there are many examples, but I think uh, these three could get somebody started. Thanks for providing those resources. That's really great. For I'll definitely have to read those, and anyone listening, I'm sure, could learn a lot from them. Um, I just have to ask, on the last case study, why is it that rivers can recover so quickly compared to other? The force of the water. Mm. The water itself does the work for you. Yeah. But you have to see what's degraded, and if this if it's been channelized, it just the force of the water just flows so fast it can't have any of its natural effects. Um, if, if, if it's been prevented by uh, the banks are been cut and destroyed from the cattle, the, the river itself dies. It gets all silted. So by using some engineering uh, and mechanical um, methods, you, you start to restructure how the force of the water is, is dealt with. And that's what helps the, the ecological process. Interesting. The, the ecology is there, but it's been suppressed. Mm -hmm. So the engineering and the, and the mechanical things restore the actual mechanics of how the, the river once moved. So you, you just manipulate the flow of the water. Exactly. Interesting. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for coming to speak with me, providing all these great stories and resources. I'm sure everyone's learned a lot. I definitely have. Anything in closing? Well, we're looking forward to the third and final chapter of this uh, conversation. Absolutely. For anyone out there who feels like restoring a whole forest or a river or a herd of elk might be too much, the next episode's going to be about how you can get involved and... As we've learned in this episode, restoration is diverse, and it's a very large pro large project in some ways, and sometimes not. So 
you can do it on a small scale or a large scale in your own backyard or anywhere you are. So that's what we'll be talking about in the next session here with you. All right. Thanks. Thank you.